0: I will we'll start with the same scripture that we started with the last few times we've looked at the subject of interpretation of the, of the Bible. And that is 2, or 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. 2 Timothy 2 15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Why? Because handling accurately the word of truth. It's, it's something that we have to be diligent about if we're going to do what Paul says here. Of course, he was speaking to Timothy in this situation, but it's for all of us. We want to be able to present ourselves approved of God and to do that, we're going to have to handle accurately the word of truth. So that's why we're taking some time to look at these principles of biblical interpretation. Let's pray before we go on. Father, help us now. We pray that this might be something that would help us to understand your word uh, so that we could please you in our walk with our words. Um, and just be able to share your truth with others. Help us, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I don't know if you've got your sheets with you or not. Uh, I imagine some of you have forgot them, and I didn't bring extras really this time. Um, if if for some reason you have not received a sheet or lost it, it is on the, It is on the... Church website, right, Terry? Not yet. It will be. <laughs> we're, we're gonna we're gonna get it up there, and uh, then you can look through it um, in the future. Well, what uh, what we did last time, we actually got off into uh, a little bit of a time of discussion and analyzing some of what I was presenting related to this. Uh, principle number five: the fuller sense of Scripture, which basically means that the meaning of a particular Scripture is not always exhausted by what we see in the immediate context, or even if by coming to understand what the uh, the author the the uh, author intended for the meaning. Especially in the Old Testament, there may be a fuller, greater meaning there than what is readily apparent just from that Scripture itself. Uh, so we, we, we spent some time on that. And we skipped, kind of along with that, we skipped over to Principle 7, the centrality of Christ principle, which basically uh, reinforces that idea because most of that fuller sense in the Old Testament has to do with Christ. And uh, some of those writers long to see actually what they were writing about they they got some sometimes had somewhat of a sense of it but couldn't really understand what they were writing themselves so the centrality of christ in other words um jesus himself told us when when you're reading that old testament it's about me he said that in a number of places look look for me because it's about me um in fact, he told the Pharisees, "Search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and they are those that speak of me. Those those Old Testament scriptures speak of me. The Law, the Prophets. That's look for Christ. So the centrality of Christ, um, the the thing that that will be the key to to understanding the Scriptures is Christ. You're not, you know, if you're not finding Christ. Uh, there you're missing what God wanted you to see, so uh, that's pretty much where we ended off last time. so we skipped number six. I want to start and uh, just some of these we won't spend a whole lot of time on uh, because they're fairly uh, self-evident as to what what's uh, we're talking about, but the harmony and balance of the scriptures, the harmony basically has to do with the idea of scriptures um, are going to ha- harmonize with one another. Uh, if you find something that seems to contradict one place with another place, you just have to say there's something here I'm not understanding right. Because God has given us uh, uh, scriptures that uh, don't contradict one another. They're, they are uh, a harmony if, if we understand them correctly. So and that's of course the harmony and then the balance the harmony and balance of the scriptures now by by balance we're talking about the idea that we need to uh emphasize what god emphasizes we need to uh have the balance in our understanding of what the bible teaches that that is there in the scriptures which presupposes that you read the whole bible uh you're not going to have a find the balance of the scriptures by just reading, you know, one section of scripture over and over and over again. Um, and that's that's one of the values of uh, when a person is, is preaching, for them to, to uh, preach through a whole book, not just uh, always speak topically, because if you speak topically, you know, you can just pick out the topics you want to speak on. But if you're speaking through a whole book of the Bible, you're going to you know, deal with everything that's there. At least you should. So the idea that we're talking about here is just that uh, we want to make sure that we're in our thinking as we're reading the Bible and then as as preachers also, uh, Charles and myself especially, we want to to make sure that we're giving a balanced view, which means uh, we emphasize what God emphasizes. Which, you know, again, that's Christ. Christ is going to be right at the center of everything. Christ and His Church. And you know, if you if you get with certain groups or certain people, there's always something they want to talk about. Uh, at least it seems that way with some particular people. Some people it might be prophecy. Well, there's a place for that, but if that's if that's the main thing. You're, you're missing the balance, you see. You, you want to have the balance that the Bible gives us. Um, so, I, I mean, really, for each of us as individuals and as a church, it's a good question to ask ourselves occasionally, are we emphasizing the things that God emphasizes in, in the Word? Or are we emphasizing some, some things more just because we happen to like that particular area than what the Bible does. It's it's something to be careful about. So anyway, that was principle number six, the harmony and balance of the scriptures. won't spend any more time on that because I think it's fairly uh, evident. Now, this number eight, genre, that's kind of a different word for some of us, uh, unless we've spent a little more time in the English department. Suzanne here, hi. (laughs) You're probably familiar with that. Word, but what what we're talking about the genre principle we're talking about that that um, different parts of the Bible fit into different literary molds, different styles, different categories of literature uh, y- you have some things that are just basic uh, history, or you have some that are poetry you have uh, some that are More prose, some more poetry, some prophecy, which is a little different kind of a of a a, a literary style. So we have to recognize those things as we read through, because if you're dealing with uh, prophecy, for instance, or in in uh, the Psalms poetry, you're going to find more symbolic type things. You should expect them there, uh, because in in uh, in prophecy and, and poetic-type portions, you're going to find much more symbolic-type things. So uh, I think, you know, even if we don't know that word, genre, we're, we're aware that that's the case as we're reading through the Bible. Um, you know, just to give an example, if I, if I had you write an account of your last time of at christmas if if i say write that just write that like you'd write it for a newspaper well then i say not now write it in a poem it's going to be different you you, you just write it different and people would recognize this is not the same you may be trying to convey the same ideas but you do it in a different way uh if you were writing for instance to a friend or writing it for a magazine, or writing it. Or how about this? L- write me a song about your last Christmas time. You see, it's going to be different, but nevertheless, it w- you can still convey the same basic truths. But the style is going to be different. So that's what we're talking about here. Um, one of the one of the things that I was helpful to me when I first realized it, and so I kind of put it in here as a specific point was that that. Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are not promises. You see that kind of um, towards the end of that section eight. It says um, uh, it's a type of wisdom literature. And so proverbs are mostly maxims, maxims and general truths based on broad experience and observation. They are guidelines, not guarantees, precepts, not promises. So, what, what are we talking about? Well, let's just look at one of the most uh, well-known ones, for, at least for parents, uh, Proverbs 22. Let's turn to that, Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, that sounds like a promise. You know, train up the child, he won't depart from it. Well, it's a, that is a general principle. If you do that in general, this is true. Does that mean that there's never a parent that, or parents that train up the child in the way they should go and they, and they don't depart from it? No, there are exceptions to the rule because this is a general guideline. It's, it's, it's not a promise as such. It's a proverb. And so if we approach the book of Proverbs um, as just containing promises in, in uh, statements like that, we're likely to be uh, misled or disappointed. Let me show you. Just in this same chapter, you're in chapter 22 of Proverbs, uh, verse 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. In general, that's true. But that doesn't mean that if you fear God, you're going to have a long life necessarily. Some people that fear God die young. See, it's not an absolute promise. It's a general principle. If you live according to God's way, generally speaking, you'll live longer. You, you, your lifestyle will make it so that you will uh, live longer. You won't be off to a bunch of sin that, that was going to bring early death. Uh, you'll be prosperous because you're, you're honest, you're frugal, you know. Those things in general are true, but it, it's not an absolute promise. You might live a uh, humble and uh, uh, a life that fears God, and you might die young at, at, with not very much money. That might be, so you get the point. Uh, let's see, same uh, same chapter, verse eleven. Uh, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. Well, in general, that will be true, but it's not always true. You might the king or the one in authority might not like you. So. Uh, it's 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 a general pro, uh, a principle a uh, a um, a guideline a a general truth and yet it's not a promise one more verse 29 kind of is the same type of thing do you see a man skilled in his work he will stand before kings he will not stand before obscure men well and in general if you if you're skilled in something you'll advance in that area and and uh, you know be recognized for but it not always you know so that i guess i belabored that point long enough now that's not to say that there aren't some things that we can take as promises uh in in the book of proverbs proverbs uh another well-known proverb three five and six chapter three five and six trust in the lord with all your heart do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight, I think, and that's just a promise. That's just the way it's going to, that's the truth. There's no uh, exceptions to the rule there. That's the way it is. So there are, you know, there are those um, type of things in Proverbs too. But the point is, is that you can't always take a proverb as a promise, okay? I spent too long on that, didn't I? <laughs> okay, well, we'll press on here. Um, so just, just the basic thing here that there are different styles of literature in the Bible, and we need to recognize that. Any questions on that? That one's not, not too difficult, shouldn't be too controversial. Uh, I listed some of the different, uh, styles or, or genres there at the end of that section. All right, the next one, <clears throat> number nine, the historical grammatical principle. Now, really, this is kind of a combination of some of the others that we've already looked at, uh, but I, I just wanted to emphasize it, that the Bible was not just dumped down on earth into a vacuum. It was presented, God's, the different people that God had author. The different parts of the Bible lived in different cultures at different times. And we need to recognize that. You know, it's one of the the glories of Christianity that it is a historical religion. It's rooted in history, you see. Um, that's why God spends so much time saying, so-and-so begot so-and-so, to let you know that this this actually happened right down here on earth. That's one of the, it isn't just a, a book of, of, uh, of nice precepts or things. It's, it's a historical account of what God has done here on earth, especially in his son. But that makes it so that it was uh, worked out in, in particular cultures at particular times, which means that if you're going to understand that event, you have to know something about that culture you with me God rooted it in history which is wonderful but the fact is because it's rooted in history we have to do a little extra work sometime to find out what that particular thing meant at that time because some things have changed words change you know we we use words different I mean a hundred years ago the word gay was a pretty good word but it's changed I mean, it's still a good word, but it's gotten a totally different association than it used to. Anyway, that's, that's one part of the, the aspect, but, but more than that, what we're talking about here is just how, because God's truth is rooted in history, you have to know some, you have to do a little extra work sometime to find out exactly what he's saying. For instance, if we read in the Bible that we should gird up our loins, you might say. Uh yeah, I want to do that. What does that mean? Now, if you've been, you know, or read the Bible a little bit, you can start getting a feel for what that does mean. But to really understand it, it's good to go back and read a little his history about how they dressed back then, especially the men, to understand what it means to gird up your loins. That's just one example. But also, that's the kind of the historical. And then the grammatical thing is just how how language is used and there's lots of figures of speech in the Bible and sometimes they're not just readily apparent, apparent what it means because, you know, if a phrase was popular in the time when, when let's say, when Peter was writing, we may have lost the meaning of that phrase now. Because, you know, I mean, for instance... I don't know, if 100 years from now, if if somebody reads in, in a, something we wrote where we said it was raining cats and dogs, they might think, boy, that was really a weird time to live. <laughs> <laughs> Dangerous even. <laughs> well, there, we're using a figure of speech. Well, those there's some of those in the Bible too. And so sometimes it takes a little extra thinking and digging in to... Uh, Determine exactly what was meant. i I mentioned um, this thing of hyperbole. Um, one of the one of the figures of speech. I kind of expanded on that one a little bit uh, in the account here because the Bible, biblical writers, uh, I guess apparently in the in the cultures that were associated with with uh, the the various writers of the scriptures. This thing of using hyperbole was fairly common. Now, we do it. I mean, we do it a lot of times, and, and we don't realize it. I mean, you come in after a hard day's work and say, Mom, I'm starving. Well, that's, that's hyperbole. <laughs> you're, not, you're not literally starving, but you are hungry. Uh, so, anyway, th- that type of thing shows up in the scriptures. Um, quite often and you need to recognize I, I gave some examples of it there and you can look those up um, if you want to see some examples of what we're talking about biblical hyperbole but that's just you know there's personifications where we, we have uh, we give animals or even inanimate things the, the characteristics of, of people that's personification uh, the, the mountains were skipping like calves, or something like that. You know, that's <laughs> why did that one get you, Rebecca? <laughs> um, they're there. They're there in the scriptures, you know, and we have to recognize them. Uh, anthropomorphisms, where we give, uh, we we ascribe to God human characteristics. That type of thing uh, so again, I don't think that that that's too uh, difficult to get a hold of, and some of these things, if you just get a good uh, bible dictionary uh concordance, those type of things read read some commentaries, you get a feel for these these. Uh, figures of speech, and, uh, and, and also the historical setting that some things were written in that just helps us uh, understand those things better. So um, I think maybe the one thing I would emphasize on this, though, is just the last sentence that that is under that section. This does not mean that only trained scholars can study the Bible for any, with any profit. If you'll just read the Bible, you're going to get something. If you read it honestly, you can get what God wants you to get on the main things. Uh, And I like the uh, verse that says, The unfolding of thy words gives light, it imparts understanding to the simple. Just get into the Word is the main thing. And as you do, some of these things come up, you'll want to dig in a little more and find out. I wonder why that was said that way. Or I wonder what that phrase means. And, and you know, it'll come naturally to, to dig into these things. So, uh, this section then kind of leads us in to um, the question that David asked. Where is David? Oh, yeah, in the back. Okay. Uh, four uh, Four weeks ago or so. Because we're talking here about some of the cultural aspects of Christianity because Christianity was put down, well, uh, not just Christianity, but the the Jewish uh, scriptures, the Old Testament, were spoken into certain cultures at different times, Christianity especially into the first century culture. So that means then that sometimes we have to be able to distinguish between what is cultural for that time and what was abiding truth for all time? And that was David, that was David's question, and we didn't I said uh, we should spend a little extra time on it in the future, because I was going to deal with it under this number nine, so we're at number nine. So now we're going to deal with David's question, Lord willing, by handing out a sheet. Another sheet, this is what you wanted, I hope. Okay, so what we're trying to determine here is when we read through the scriptures, what was cultural and relevant for that time and what then carries over for all time, or what you might say, what's transcultural goes beyond any particular culture. Um, so let's just kind of talk through this a little bit, and maybe there'll be some questions. Uh, that's fine. I, uh, it's good to uh, ask if if something's not clear. Now, it, it's obvious, I think, to all of us as we're reading through the scriptures. That some concepts that the biblical writers present were relative only to that particular culture at that time. Um, if you're reading back in Exodus 23:19, we we learn that you're not supposed supposed to boil a kid in its mother's milk. Now, obviously. That, you know, we're thinking, I don't quite understand that. Well, the reason you don't understand that is because that was something that was relevant for that culture. It had to do with the fact that uh, the, the Canaanites, part of their false worship, had to do with boiling a kid in its mother's milk. Obviously, God doesn't want his people following that practice. So, but that was a cult, something that was current, relevant in that setting. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a principle there for us, but we're not really worried about boiling a kid in the mother's milk. Or, here's maybe a clearer one. If you're reading in Ruth, you, you see that that Boaz <coughs> receives a sandal to confirm a land sale. Now, we don't do that. It's just not something, you know, When I when I sell my house, I'm not going to go give the guy my sandal along with it to make sh- make sure that this was all taken care of right. But that was, back then, that was important. You see, that was part of that cultural situation. Or, if you come to the New Testament, uh, when Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, he tells them not to take two tunics. That's not a problem when you go down to Columbia, I don't think, uh, whether you need to take two tunics or not that was a cultural situation a setting at that time so uh, some of those things are obvious obviously dealing with with concepts that were particular to that culture doesn't mean that there's not something we can learn from that but the the the, the cultural setting determined a lot of what was going on in in those examples and many many others on the other hand other concepts are abiding principles applying to all cultures at all times throughout history. So, what are some criteria? To answer the question, what are some criteria to determine which is what? Which are cultural for that time, relative to that time, which are uh, transcultural and abiding for uh, all cultures? First of all, I would say, Number one, examine the practice or teaching in light of what Jesus taught the Pharisees. And Jesus taught this more than than once to the Pharisees. I don't think they ever got it, but he kept telling them. Uh, They often invalidated God's timeless truth for the sake of their tradition, their cultural teaching at that time. Now let's turn to Mark chapter 7. Verse 1, And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come to Jerusalem, and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. Now, here's the phrase, For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. Uh, and when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves and there's many other things which they received in order to observe, such as the washing pitchers and copper pots. So they they were complaining to Jesus that his disciples were not doing these traditional things. And it was something that all, it says all the Jews were doing this. So it was a common custom amongst the Jews. Well, Jesus said, this is not what's really important. What you're, what you're looking at and putting your emphasis on and what you're making a big deal about is not the really important things. So we're going to skip down through this because basically he says, you know, you're teaching as doctrine the precepts of men and you're ignoring the commandments of God. So then he presents, he said, now if you want to know what really defiles a person, It's not those outward things like you're looking at, like all all these things that you're putting such an emphasis on. He says, what defiles a person, and you get to it uh, over in verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, not what you take in, but what proceeds out of the man is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So he's saying, here's what you need to be concerned about, and here are the transcultural things. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. It's always been like this. It always will be like this. These are the things that that are really the things you need to be concerned about because these are the things that will defile you. Uh, And so I, I put that in there because there is this emphasis that you see amongst Pharisees, and there's still a lot of them around, on these outward external things. And Jesus said, You've got to look, if you want to understand what this thing of following me is all about, you've got to understand that it's all about your heart. It's all about those inward things and the, the things that he mentions here. Uh, true defilement comes from the heart. And that is true in any culture at any time. So, first question would be Does this seem like a basic. Biblical absolute, as you're reading through this, does this seem like a basic biblical absolute or like a cultural-based relative type thing? That's Just analyze it from that basic standpoint to begin with. Now, the next one kind of expands on that a little bit. Does this practice or teaching seem to go in the opposite direction of our fourth principle of interpretation, progressive Revelation, you remember we talked about that uh, been a month ago almost, I guess. Progressive revelation generally goes from the more external to the more internal, from the outward forms and symbols to inward reality. And then I quoted that verse in, in Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Again, see, he's doing, what Paul's doing is very similar to what Jesus was teaching the, the Pharisees there. Not to look so much on those outward things. Uh, those outward things can change a lot from culture to culture. But what's not going to change are those inward things. And he says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy. So, uh, the abiding principles related to eating and and dress and that type of thing moderation in eating modesty in dress those are new testament principles that are for all cultures and even in in following those basic principles that will s- distinguish you somewhat from the rest of the culture just moderation in eating i just i just heard that in the next few years, uh, what is it? One out of two people are going to have diabetes, mainly because of the way we eat and our lack of of exercise. Anyway, uh, the point is is that even moderation in in eating and modesty in dress is going to distinguish you some somewhat from the rest of our culture. But the thing that should really set us apart is the fruit of the Spirit. That's what really should set apart. Those inward things as they come out in our lives. Not how, not how it, like Charles said, you know, here are these, these well, maybe I shouldn't. I kind of remember these things go out all over the place. <laughs> uh, the thing that, sh- that sets us apart should not be some strange style of dress. It just shouldn't. But the thing that should set us apart is, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. That's what really will set us apart as Christians. So, anyway, we need to be careful then if, as we're trying to, reading through the Scriptures and we're trying to determine if something is just cultural or if it's abiding if this practice seems to go backward in terms of an an unnecessary emphasis on externals, see that's going in the wrong direction from god's progressive revelation. There is a lot of that in the Old Testament God's weaning us from that and saying the heart, the heart, the heart is what matters. Get that right, and these other things will fall into place but if this if this seems to go in the opposite direction of, of progressive revela- revelation an unnecessary emphasis on externals, then be careful. And I would say, too, just the last sentence, beware of becoming so burdened down with a particular cultural practice that the actual abiding principle becomes secondary. See, that's a real snare, too. You get to emphasizing that, that cultural aspect of it so much that the, the big thing that God wants you to see and, and emphasize just kind of takes second place all right number three notice if this practice or teaching was mandated or forbidden during different times and cultures within the history of the bible itself See, so you got you got a clue in the bible because you got different you got different cultures represented in the bible you have know, got thousands of years presented here so if something's uh there in one culture and in another culture and in another culture that's a, that may be a clue that this is something that's true for this culture right now that you're in too. So, um, for instance, uh, to take, take a very obvious one, in those things that, that Jesus mentioned there to the Pharisees concerning uh, evil thoughts and fornications and thefts, and murders, adulteries, coveting, those things have always been wrong. You, go, you start at the beginning of the Bible and work your way through every culture that God spoke into, He is saying, that's wrong. That's wrong. Take the obvious one, murder. That's been wrong. In fact, we're told that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. I mean, way back in the beginning, murder was wrong. And it was wrong uh, in the time of, of David. And it was wrong in the time of Paul. And it's wrong for us now. It's it's one of those things you see that the Bible in the Bible itself we see that that transcended culture because God spoke it into all different types of and cultural situations. So number, uh, number four then does it appear that this practice or teaching was normative for the New Testament churches? Here's another little clue. It's not always lock tight, but nevertheless, when we're looking in the New Testament. And we see God saying, uh, saying something through one of his uh, apostles or, or biblical writers to one church, and then he says it to another church. And then he says that same thing to another church. That's a pretty good clue that maybe this thing is for all the churches all the time. Now, it may not always be, but, but that's, a, that's a clue. We're, looking, we're trying to examine things that help us to see whether this uh, is just for that time or more permanent. Um, number five and this one I have to take a little more time on uh, because it's probably maybe a new area of thought for some, some of you is this practice or teaching part of the order of creation what I mean by that how God made things to begin with and basically you're dealing with the first two chapters of Genesis before the fall okay Because if this is how God made things to begin with, if this is how things were from the hand of God, you can be pretty sure this is the way God wants things to be, right? Uh, How he designed things from the beginning. So, what do we see when we look back to those first two chapters of Genesis? you see things like the sanctity of human life. What's that? Well, that means we're made in the image of God. That's what that means. We're made special. And so there's a specialness. When we talk about sanctity, we're talking about a sacredness or a special significance. So there's a special significance to human life. And if there's this teaching or, or, or practice emphasizes that, well, that's a pretty good sign that that's, that's something that's not just for one culture the sanctity of marriage, family, and gender roles. In other words, you see before the fall, you see divinely ordered relationships in terms of marriage, one man, one woman. Uh, in, tr- in terms of a family, children, be fruitful and multiply. You see something of the, the roles that are there. The, the woman was made from man. Nevertheless, there's an interdependence upon one another. Paul brings that out, how that even though um, woman was made for man, man comes from woman. In other words, there's an interdependence. So all those things are, are hinted at or, or presented in, in the first couple chapters of Genesis prior to the fall. So the sanctity of marriage, family, and gender roles, the sanctity of labor and rest. What am I talking about there? Well, God made us in his image to rule and reign over his creation and care for his creation. so that speaks of labor. labor is something that should be part of all of our lives and if we're capable, we ought to be working. but is that supposed to be all of our lives? No, there's supposed to be rest too. God taught us that by doing that himself on the on the seventh day he rested so Something related then to the sanctity of labor and rest. Uh, those, That's there before the fall. That's part of the way God made creation in the first place. And then the sanctity of the creator-creature relationship. By that, I just mean that uh, men were all people. All people are, were made to love and honor and obey their creator. I mean, that's just that's the way life is supposed to be. When it's not like that, things are out of whack. But if we see, if we see these basic uh, uh, creation order being presented in a teaching or, or a practice, then it's probably something that's not just cultural, not just for one time. It's for all culturals all the time, all cultures, all the time. Um, so, the question would be, then, is this practice or teaching, is it in accord with the order of creation? If so, it's surely as relevant to to us. Um, see, these things are not limited to... to The Jews, they're not limited to the Greeks, they're not limited to Americans, they're not even limited to Christians. This is for everybody. These these basic things we're talking about here. Everybody should recognize the sanctity of human life. Everybody should recognize the sanctity of marriage and family and gender roles. Everybody should recognize a place of labor and rest. Everybody should recognize the the, uh, basic creator-creature relationship. Uh, well, let's go on. I'll, I'll give a chance for questions here after we uh, finish this, this page here. Is this practice or teaching based on the character of God? I mean, now you're getting down to the re- very rock bottom now, or the very top. I don't know which is the best way of putting it. Uh, is this based on the character of God? If so... It rises above any particular culture. The relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to each other is the standard of all right relationships. And that's one to really think about. The standard standard of relationships, and most of life has to do with relationships. Well, how do we determine if something's just a cultural thing for relationships or if it's transcultural? Well, is this... In accord with the basic character of God, His moral character is the ultimate standard of all morality, and all earthly relationships ought to be like those within the Trinity. Ever think about that? All earthly relationships ought to be like the relationships, the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity. What what kind of relationship is that? Well, it's loving. It's caring. It's kind, it's trusting, it's pure, it's respectful, it's cooperative, it's sensitive, it's uh, complimentary. That's the way earthly relationships ought to be. As Christians come to know God better, they will increasingly recognize that a practice or teaching is in accord with the basic character of God. That's a, that's a big one. I don't think it can get any bigger than that one. And the last one, then, is just uh, something I think is important to remember, is that because, because God has promised to lead his people, and because we do have the mind of Christ, we're told that we, ha- we have the mind of Christ as Christians. It means God's working in our mind, our our, our lives, teaching us. We can usually know if something is cultural or permanent, by using sanctified common sense. San- not just common sense. Even that's not very common, but but even less common is sanctified common sense. And by sanctified common sense we mean a mind that's being renewed by the holy spirit. If you if you'll be seek- seeking God and determining to walk with God, he'll help you see what was just cultural and what was permanent abiding something we need to to walk in today god will lead us into that so that really ties into the last point uh, back in the basic principles that we talked about which is the illumination of the holy spirit uh, <coughs> above all these rules and things that we've looked at, and these are important, but you have to have God guiding you. You have to have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. You have to have God's, God-given in, insight into spiritual things if you're going to understand the Bible and rightly interpret it. Uh, scripture set before us spiritual truths, and you have to be spiritual to understand those truths. Or at least I'll say it this way, you have to be spiritual to apply those truths. It's not, you know, I, I think lost people understand a lot more than what they want to admit they understand. But to actually apply these things to our lives and accept them into our lives takes a work of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, just a couple of things here in closing. Not that the Spirit's presence in the heart, in men's heart, makes patient study unnecessary. No. It doesn't, you, know, you can't say, well, I've got the Holy Spirit, so I don't need to study the Bible. It'll just, you know, I just put my hand on it and it'll come into me somehow. <laughs> You're going to have to study. It does, the Holy Spirit doesn't make patient study unnecessary. The Spirit was not given to make the Bible, uh, Bible study needless. It, he, he's given to make it effective. Yes. He will make it effective in our lives. The, Bi- uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't bypass the brain. Uh, if you're going to understand the Bible rightly, you're going to have to think. It's going to take real thinking, digging in. Uh, that's why I put in there, the Bible is not designed for lazy people. It also doesn't mean that because we need the Holy Spirit's teaching and and illumination, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit can make the Bible mean anything. It's not going to mean it. It's going to mean what God wants it to mean and what what He had it to mean when He had it written. The Holy Spirit is not the promoter of fanciful spiritualizing or applications of text out of their context. No matter how sincere or genuinely felt, no dream, vision, or supposed revelation uh, which contradicts the Scriptures really came from the Holy Spirit. It just didn't come from God. You know, No matter how much you feel like it did, if it contradicts the rest of the Bible, what you're saying, it's not right. <clears throat> Uh, and then in italics, there in my last, second to the last line, the key role of the Spirit is not to add information to the text, but to soften our hearts in order to receive what's there. So, anyway, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We're say- <laughs> what we're saying is that God really can be our teacher. Through the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what uh, John was bringing out in First John 2:27, where he says this, "And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. I think he's saying that God will be the teacher of every true believer. Of course, He uses a lot of things to do that. He uses other people. He uses preachers, teachers. He uses books. He uses a lot of things. He, but One of the main things He uses is His Word, the Scriptures, as you seek to understand it, He'll teach you. The Holy Spirit is given that we may both learn and live the truth. Learn it and live it. So, God will bless careful, diligent, prayerful study of His Word. He'll bless it by granting the Holy Spirit to be your teacher. Well. I guess I'll ask if there's any questions.